Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. A common illustration employed throughout Scripture in relation to missions and evangelism is that of sowing and reaping. Jesus put it simply when he said, And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. Today's program powerfully illustrates that principle at work among the Navajo on the Navajo Land Reservation in Arizona. My guest today is missionary Joel Haynes. Brother Haynes is one of the most intense men that I've been around in a while. I'd heard of the work he's doing among the Navajo a few years back, and it was my privilege to be with him in a missions conference and sit down to discuss their ministry and the amazing fruit that they're presently seeing after many long years of plowing and seed sowing among the Navajo. The conversation also took us to the subject of serving in missions as a family. I enjoyed this interview immensely, and I think you'll be blessed and provoked by Brother Haynes' testimony today, just as I was. With that introduction, let's get into the conversation with missionary to the Navajo, Brother Joel Haynes. Brother Haynes, you're a second-generation missionary to Navajo land, so you're reaping right now on some ground that you witness being sown actually in your in your youth through the labors of your parents. And so in in getting this conversation started, I, I was hoping you'd actually take us back a generation and tell us a little bit about your parents' call to minister to the Navajo and then of course how the Lord dealt with you personally about your own call to the nation. Absolutely, Brother Lee. Well you know, Dad's call to the reservation really began, it was a long road getting there, and it began in the state of Texas. So he served in churches all the way up to about age 39 in the state of Texas. And it seemed like everywhere he went, God brought Native American people across his path. But really it happened in his last ministry position in a little town called Springtown, Texas. There was a fellow that started taking him out on mission trips to the Navajo Indian Reservation. And after about 10 years in a row, taking mission trips out there and every year just begging the Lord, Lord, you've got to send somebody out here. And the way he tells the story, he said he was out in the middle of a dust patch, which we have a lot of those on the Navajo Indian Reservation. He laid on his face and he said, I was just begging God, God, send somebody to these people. So while I was praying, I felt the warm breath of God on me. And he said, I looked up to see the Lord's face, and it was an old stray res dog licking me right on the face. I was breathing over his head. And he got a good chuckle, and he said, uh, Lord, if you want me to go, I'll go. And I went back home, spoke with my mother, and at that point, she was expectant with their seventh child. I was just a little boy at that time, about five years old. And we set out on the deputation trail. We started in a 1980-something Oldsmobile car crammed all six of us kids and the little one in mama's womb with our luggage. You know, those cars back then were more like riding along in boats. (laughs) So there are kids sleeping in, we were sleeping in the dashboard and the floorboard and went along. I remember a church along the way got us a 15 passenger van and we thought we were driving around in a limo after that, brother. So dad finished deputation. We went out to the reservation with, with all of the kids. I think my oldest sibling at that time was 16 years old. And uh, brother, they stuck at it faithful. And dad, dad fought a lot of battles and we watched those. 
I remember a lot of times, especially in the first church plant, we lived about 76 miles away. It's tough as a missionary to be able to live really close to where you're planting churches. If you're white and you can get yourself a place on an Indian reservation, uh, it costs a lot to move and it's a lot of red tape. So you typically just minister from wherever you're at and you drive the distances. I remember tucking away and just praying and asking, Lord, Lord, would you send somebody to church tonight? Just one person that dad could preach to. It was that slow. Wow. That's where I began to learn preaching myself. Dad would teach me how to do outlines. And there were some of those nights he'd say, you know, Joel, why don't you just get up, son? He said, uh, and, and preach what the Lord would have for us. And that's where I cut my teeth preaching, was preaching to my family. And that's a good crowd because you pretty much know all the sins. You know, you're living <laughs> in the same house, so you can let them have it. Dad and I would go knocking on doors, brotherly, and... You know, with our people, with the Navajo in particular, they've got a thing about the number four. Hmm. So many times they won't, uh, at least at that time, they wouldn't talk to you until you'd been by their house four times. Interesting. And it was a test really to see if what you had to listen to was worth hearing. Number four, is, it's a sacred number. As far as Navajo people are concerned, we got four sacred mountains, directions, everything's done in number fours. So that's the way they think. And we would go by and knock on these doors. We'd see their windows open. People would be home. They'd look straight at us, and they'd go back to doing what they were doing like we weren't even at their door. Wow. Door after door after door, that's what we would experience. And, and a lot of missionaries that would come to our area, they would get discouraged quickly because they didn't understand what was going on. It wasn't the people saying no. It wasn't huh. them really rejecting Christ. It's just they've been through so much heartache. And they've been used by a lot of people that'll come out from the East, sure. make pitiful videos and go home and raise money off their suffering. And so they didn't trust us. I remember one door in particular, we knocked and the fella opened up the door and he just cursed my father up and down one side, the other words that, you know, my little missionary kids ears had never heard before in my life. I mean, it was an eloquent cussing. And, uh, when the fella got done and slammed the door in my dad's face, he turned around to me and he knelt down for a high five. I think I was about eight. And he said, well, Joel, we got to talk to somebody today. <laughs> <laughs> so I, we high five. We went for ice cream and celebrated. You know, and, wow. and, and that, was, that, that was the pace of the work. And that, that's what I remember. And uh, I, I look back now and I didn't understand because they shielded us from a lot of the things that had been done to them. And that they went through because they wanted us to see God's goodness in the ministry sure. and to have a sweet taste in our mouths for it. I look back and I see the trail that they took. And I, I, you know, the more I study about our area, there were fellows even before dad that came. And, and these are guys that you won't see their names on the front of glossy magazine covers sure. or on marquees and lights. They went to small, hard to reach areas and they knocked on doors and they got no no, no, no. And then on the fifth time, they got a maybe or just a listening to. The average missionary would come out to our area and, and, and it wouldn't be because they were lazy or didn't have the hand of God on them. But they, they'd spend 40 years trying to plant one work and just see one native man raise up to take the work. And, and that has just been the pace of things on the Navajo Nation. That's what, that's what I was brought up dealing sure. with. And that's what my parents went through. Sure. And uh, and continue to this day, they're still on the field, and we get to work together. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And there has been, and we're going to get to it in the conversation. Their faithfulness and their the all those years of plowing that hard ground, yeah. 
it has paid off in time. Yes, sir. But when we think about emissions, when we think about fruitful fields, there's probably not any fruitful field that was always fruitful. <laughs> exactly. Yes, absolutely. Somebody had to do the pioneer and somebody <laughs> had to break up the fallow ground. Yeah. So I've always heard that work with the American Indians, regardless of where you're at, honestly, whether you're dealing with the uh, Eskimo or Inuit people yeah. in the in the far north in the Arctic regions, whether you're out west, um, whether you're in the Midwest, that it's that it's difficult that it's difficult work, yeah. um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of factors to that. Other than just the slowness, what do you think are some of the challenges that your parents have uh, faced, and that you continue to deal with in that in with that culture and with those people in that region? Yeah. Well, you know, something unique to our tribe, and this is not speaking to every tribe, um, has been the gambling. And the gambling was not present in our tribe other than just in bingo halls and things that people would do privately. But as the casinos have come in, and that has created a new problem. And they, of course, promised to bring in outside money, truckers from the interstate that runs along the southern border of our reservation. But if you drive by there, when, when I was coming out to this conference where we are, um, it's packed. During COVID time, it was packed. When they would shut right. down the churches, they'd have everyone there. So we're battling with the addiction with gambling. It has been alcohol for many years. Uh, meth has become even more prevalent than the gambling or the alcohol. And especially in the community where we're planting work now in Pinyon, there's just so much violence. And you have a generation of young people that are raising up now that in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, there's some shame as to being native. And and the way they look at it is they're watching, they're looking at the internet and they're watching YouTube and they're seeing you know, all that the world displays and, and claims it has to offer. And they're thinking, because I'm an Navajo, that's out of my reach. And so there really is, they have no identity or sense of self that they used to have even in their own traditions. And they're searching, which gives us this open door. Uh, but we still are battling a lot with the Native American tradition. The Navajos have their own beliefs. There's a lot of gospel bridges in those Native American beliefs that we love to be able to use as a point of reference to yeah. help them see the superiority of Jesus Christ. So we battle with that a lot. And within that, there's just a lot of corruption and darkness. Sure. The kids that I grew up with, that my parents ministered to, uh, you know, I, I remember a little girl 12 years old who had been battling with a physical sickness. And her parents sent her for a night in the Hogan with the medicine man to do an all-night prayer. And what it was is it was a rape. And I remember being at church Sunday school that next Sunday and her describing those things to me. And many people would know it coming onto our reservation because our folks are not always the most expressive when it comes to visitors or strangers. Now, they're a happy bunch of folks around family and the people they know and where is a safety zone. But in the church that we're serving, in every church I've planted, I'd say 80-90% of the women have been molested, raped, especially if they've grown up in the culture and in the traditions. And uh, and not far off of that would be things that have happened to boys. So we're battling with that. And the medicine men know how to keep a strong hold on the people. They'll terrify them with ceremonies and traditional practices when they're young. And then for the rest of their life, every creak in the floor, every scratch on the window, it's a ghost. It's, they, or they'll, they'll call them uh, 
uh, yannies, uh, yinagloshis, and and they'll run back and for two thousand dollars, medicine man will give them a ceremony, and uh, and run them through the prayers. So that's that's a big hold. And when folks get saved, they've got to they've got to turn their back on that, and they can't be double minded. And what that means is that means they're going to be excluded from family. That means they're going to be looked at that they'd be called an apple. Red on the outside, white on the inside, because they label the gospel and the church as being white man's religion, which they're closer related to Jesus than you and I are, probably, yeah. my brother, you know. Sure. And, uh, and so that's a battle. And we also have what's called NAC, Native American Church, which is established by Quanta Parker and Sitting Bull. And it's a Plains Indian tradition, uh, but the idea of just being Native, of being Indian, is really gaining a lot of steam across the country. And people are coming into this religion where you get into a teepee and you smoke peyote. And it was Quanta Parker and Sitting Bull's idea of trying to take their Plains Indian tradition and Christianity and merge them together. So there will be a Bible sitting on one side by the fire. And then there will be peyote here and all of the paraphernalia that you'd use for native prayers. Uh, and you can see the devil's fingerprints on it. Sure, uh, They'll bang a drum and you take that peyote and you begin to mumble until words come into your mouth and uh, some spirit gets inside of you and they claim that you're communicating with Jesus. A lot of our people, in fact, just two weeks ago, I was sitting down with a man who's in his 20s and uh, had attempted to commit suicide that night and came over to our services because he saw the lights on after he'd failed his attempt and struggling with turning his back on Native American tradition. He sees the difference. So that those are big holds on our people. As far as practically speaking, distance is a struggle. Everything is so far. Navos are not like your typical tribe where they all sort of bunch together in one place. You've got four or 500 people here, four or 500 people there. So it means we need a lot of preachers and a lot of churches and men that are selfless enough to be willing to go to small areas right, and just carve it out for whatever it takes. Yeah. And uh, the past has proven that a lot of men are not willing to do that which is why it's important we raise up Navajo men Amen. that understand the needs of their own people that can last. Well, you got a, a you obviously had a pretty thorough education on the challenges yes. and the needs because of your parents' labor there and growing up on the reservation. You received the Lord as a young man. Yes. Uh, we're called to preach as a young man. You've already mentioned cutting your teeth with the family <laughs> on the reservation. Yeah. So walk us through your call to uh, the Navajo, going off to Bible college and how God put it in your heart personally to go there to reach the Navajo. I was saved at a young age, Brother Lee, and uh, some of my siblings and I, we struggled on the reservation. And I pulled away from the Lord for a time. And uh, to my shame, because we had an excellent family, mom and dad did a great job with us. But there was a lot of things in the transition, especially with my oldest siblings, where they struggled. And those influences came down to us younger kids. Right. And at age 14, after the older three siblings had gone out of the house, I had it in my mind that I was going to play a game. I was going to last through this. And when I turned 18, I was going to live however I wanted to. So I dressed the way they told me to dress, went where they told me to go, and my heart wasn't in it. And a youth pastor in Arlington, Texas, called my parents and said, hey, we'd like to take Joel to a youth camp. And they said, well, he would love that. Or so they thought, looking on the outward appearance, they would have thought that. And they sent me out to stay with this man. I went to that youth camp and I was miserable, brotherly. Mm. 
because I had decided to be. You know, and that's a quick yep. trip to being miserable as if you decide you're going to be. Yes, sir. And uh, as I went through that camp, Wednesday night came, and the preacher was preaching something. I don't know what it was, but the Holy Spirit of God dealt with me. I walked down during that invitation. And I tried to find some 18-year-old that I could try to pull the wool over his eyes, not deal with the real issue going on in my heart that I was a rebel and uh, that I wasn't following the Lord the way I should. And that youth pastor I was staying with came from across this open-air tabernacle, and he told that 18-year-old, he said, I'm going to pray with this guy. <laughs> Amen. And we knelt down in that grass, and I, I tried to pull the wool over his eyes. I told him, I said, I need to be a better son. And I'm not doing right by my parents. I said, they're good parents, and I'm lying to them. I said, I just want to be a better son. And he put his finger right in my face with loving kindness, and he said, Joel, you would be a better son to your parents if you were a better son to God. Ooh. And I told him, you're right. And I remember praying and rededicating my life to the Lord. And I had remembered the joy of my salvation, but things had been black and white for a long time. And I stood up from that time of prayer with birds singing Amen. and the grass green and the skies blue. And Amen. it was all the joy I had remembered that had been available to me, that I blocked off because of my own rebellion. And I, and I called my younger sisters that were still at home. And I told them, I said, I want you to know when I come home, um, we're going to help mom and dad. And Amen. the Navajo people are going to be our people. And their ministry is going to be our ministry. And whether that means we have friends or whether that means, you know, that, that we have everything that, you know, the world's telling us we need to have. I, I told them, if we've got mom and dad and if we have our church, if we have God, that's enough. Sounds like family revival. Yes, sir. It was. It was. And those girls, I'm telling you, God is using Amen. my baby sisters to this day. Amen. And from that time... About a month later, I went to a youth conference. I was listening to a preacher, Brother Terry Angel, preach a message entitled, A Man and His Cause, preaching about David. And I thought, what's purpose of my life? What, am, what cause am I investing in? And I had the dream and desire to be a rich businessman. I love dealing with money, selling, talking with people, that kind of stuff. The Lord smote my heart and said, why don't you, why don't you spread the gospel? Why, why didn't you become rich in heavenly riches? So I looked over at my dad, almost like somebody had punched me in my stomach. I was airless. I said, God's calling me to preach. <laughs> and he said, well, son, get down there and surrender. And I did. And it was pedal of the metal. You know, I've not always been a perfect son to my Lord or to my parents. But from that time, when I was in ninth grade as a 14-year-old boy, I've done my best to try to make God smile. And Amen. that's when I began to pursue God's call. Now, as far as to the reservation, but I had no idea that God would ever send me back home. I thought I'd pastor a church in Texas. I mean, I really thought the way it was going to work. I went to Bible college. I met my beautiful bride. We got married eight days after graduation. I ran her down in case I was afraid she changed her mind. So, <laughs> so we, we graduated. We ran down the aisle and got ready to you know, try to figure out what God wanted us to do. We'd been searching. My dad called me and said, son, would you consider coming home? for one year as God gives you specific direction in your life. And uh, I know this sounds weird, brother, but I, I looked at my dad and I, I well, I, I was talking to him on the phone. And I just told him straight. I said, dad, I'd love to come back home and work with our people. He said, you want to pray about it? I said, let me say yes. And then I'll pray about it. <laughs> I had the, the desire was there. Yeah. And really when I'm, when I'm on the reservation with our Navajo people and listen, I, I I'm as wide a wide a fellow as they come. When I'm around a group of Navajo folks, I'm home. Amen. Whether that's Navajo people in in any part of the country, they're they are my people. 
And, uh, and so I was so grateful to God that he sent me back home. When we arrived there, Brother Lee, when I went back home, I remember the first time I went out knocking doors. I knocked on the door of a 19-year-old young man, and he opened the door. Wow. First time out. Big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah. He listened to the entire plan of the gospel and accepted Christ as his Savior on his door. So, Talk about some confirmation. Huh? <sighs> he showed back up to church the next week was baptized the following week, <laughs> had led his first soul to Christ within the first 12 months after being saved. We'd never seen this before. Right, right. And all I, unheard of. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know all that God was communicating to me at that time. I'm slow getting on. But I began to realize we were moving into a new phase of the work on the reservation, yeah. that we had been in plowing and we had been in planting and we had been in throwing rocks out of fields and I believe in that moment, the Lord was showing me, Joel, you're moving into harvest time now. Wow. And I want you to stay to thrust in a sickle. He confirmed that again when we loaded up a van of soul winners. I think we had 22 out soul winning that night in a little church just running 50 people. And it, the roads were so washed out and muddy, we couldn't get to anybody. So we went to a local gas station and began to just evangelize to anybody that was on pavement. Yeah. I remember I jumped out of the van and Brother Lee, it was like... The light switch turns on and cockroaches running under the bed. When, when people saw me, they thought, white guy in a tie, run. <laughs> when I opened the side door and our people began to get out of the van, it was the opposite. And I watched as folks came out in the rain and began asking our families, what are you doing out here? They saw husbands and wives together. They saw children happy. They saw them dressed up and saw the difference. And the Lord communicated to me again. He said, Joel, this is what I want you to do. I want you to raise up Navajo people and get on your belly and humble yourself and realize that you can only go so far. These are the people you need to reach and they can reach their own. In that one year serving with my dad at Ganado Baptist Church, he'd been there three years, seen the church go from zero to 50, which was an incredible pace. Oh yeah. But in six months into that year, the church was running about 175 every Sunday. Wow. And we saw five Navajo men surrender to preach the gospel to reach their own people. And my wife and I, on the same night, we came to each other in tears and we said, this is it. It's where the Lord wants us to be. Somebody has to bring in this harvest. It's white. And we can't waste our window. They're not forever. The harvest is not there forever. Right. So we finished out that year. And you know, Brother Lee, nobody had ever offered me a job, a position, a ministry, before we surrendered to go to the reservation. But boy, did they start rolling in as soon as we surrendered. <laughs> I think the Lord was putting out his fleece on us yeah. to see if we're serious. And we headed out and then began to plant churches. That, that's how God led us to go back home and, and to start on the reservation again. So I guess it was in this season where God really gave you just a huge vision for what could be done, what he would be pleased to do in and among the Navajo and Navajo land. So describe for us, because you've been, you've been very, I mean, you've, you've cast this vision to a lot of others. You've presented it to churches and um, it was ambitious, but it was the Lord's. So, <laughs> so trace that. What, what, what did, was it those years back that God put on your heart and um, what kind of reception did it get when you began to uh, <laughs> relate it to others? Well, 
when the Lord established our call, we knew we were going to go out and raise a support. We knew the first church that God wanted us to plant. And, and before we left, the Lord had laid heavy on our heart the need to bring in the harvest and that this window might not always be open. So we set an initial goal um, to see 10 brand new churches planted over a period of 15 years. Now, all that I've told you, that's not the typical pace of ministry among Native people. Right. So when we went out on the deputation trail and began to cast that vision, here's a young couple, a year out of Bible college, We've done nothing but help, <laughs> and we've never planted a church in our lives other than, you know, experience with dad growing up, and preachers naturally were skeptical. They thought, who is this guy? And, and they had knowledge of men working with native tribes in different places. So you could hardly blame them in a manner of speaking. In a manner of speaking, I could hardly blame them. That's right. So as we went and cast this vision, I had folks tell me, they said, well, well, you know, Brother So-and-so's been there 40 years, and Brother So-and-so's been there this time, and, and they're still working on one, almost as if they were trying to break my fall and make me feel okay if things didn't ex- work out the way the Lord had laid it on our heart. And, and, and Brother, I, I would tell folks all the time, I'd say, listen, um, when we were on deputation, I, I developed a chip on my shoulder, but it wasn't for me. It was for the Lord. Because I knew this is from the Lord. I knew the Lord was capable. And if the work was up to me, now the Lord sent the most unlikely ambassador to try to cast that vision. And if it was up to that kid just getting started, of course it would never happen. But God's big enough, you know, and the work's not dependent upon me. And that's what we tried to communicate. And, and some even misunderstood it for a pride or an arrogance to think we had something that someone else didn't. But what we were trying to communicate was we're in a new phase. And because of the blood and the sweat, the tears, the prayer and the soul winning of those men that others knew, unsung heroes, that now were able to set up walls on their foundation thrusting in a sickle into a field that they have planted. And that's why we're always careful to tell people this is the Lord's work on the reservation. We're just part of his overall plan. And I haven't even seen it all. I have the unique perspective of having been there for a little while on the planting side to be able to appreciate this harvest. But that was one of the initial goals was 10 churches in 15 years. And, 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 And so we had that. And then we had the goal for it to start a Bible college, five minutes surrendered to preach. Well, we saw no sense in flinging five men, perfectly good Navos, halfway across the country to learn how to reach their own people. Amen. And, you know, we may not know a whole lot, but we know about reaching Indians. And so <laughs> sure. we thought we could train these, these men and send them out right here, but we've got to get this thing organized. We need to put some plan together and get these men sent out. And when I mentioned that and cast that vision at churches, I, I had a preacher that was this bold, really. He said, don't you know all those Navos are just a bunch of liars? And those Indians are gamblers and drunks and cheats. Don't you know they'll never pay their bill and they're dishonest? And my my response to him was, well... Sounds like white people yeah, amen. and black people and Hispanics and Asians. And somebody has to, had to believe that it wasn't a matter of whether you're Navajo or white, but that the Holy Spirit of God could do a work in any man, amen. in any place. And, and I really believe that that is part of the key of why so many men are surrendering under this ministry. And at this time is because 
we're allowing the Lord to do that work in their life and not keeping them under thumb and telling them, you need me or you can't do what I can do. But empowering those men saying, listen, what you read in the Bible and what you read in those biographies, God can do that it's with still you. Available. That's it. And so that was met with skepticism. I had a preacher pat me on my head. I've got a bald spot right up here. And I say, that's where he cursed my hairline. You know, <laughs> He pat me right there and he said, well, I appreciate your zeal, young missionary feller. But if things don't work out the way you planned, you just make yourself a plan B and don't be disappointed. And I turned to my wife in the, in the preacher's presence and I said, love, I think if we ever make a plan B, we'll never ever get to see God work plan A. It'd be too easy to do something else other than what he's laid on our heart. And, and, and so we had the Bible college, that goal. We had a goal to raise our support in 12 months. People said, you won't raise your sport because, you know, you're in the States and people don't see it as a mission field. And one missionary said, you're barely getting good at deputation after 12 months. <laughs> and the fallout of all of that, Brother Lee, the, what God did, he gave us the support we needed at the time two weeks before 12 months was up. The Bible college, please don't tell our students that you can't have a Bible college on the reservation because they think they're in one. They think they're learning the scriptures and preparing for sure. ministry. And there's uh, uh, this semester, we have 20 students enrolled. Hallelujah. Good men, good women that love God, that have a heart to reach their people. And this next semester, this is a first for us. We've been winning drunks and drug addicts for so long. But now a lot of these drunks and drug addicts that have raised their kids right we have a second generation coming up that have never been to ceremonies, that have not defiled their bodies. And they're going to come, they're going to get trained to go out in the ministry and, uh, and take this thing to a whole new level. You know, this is what we've always dreamed of. And, and this fall, we'll have our first two students that are second generation Hallelujah. from these families. And as far as the 10 churches in 15 years, we cranked up the clock on that goal when we opened our very first church plant. July 29th, 2012. And that was Solid Rock Baptist Church in Noslini. The college started two weeks after that. So next year will be our 10th year uh, uh, working in the Bible College. And, and since that was established, um, the Lord has allowed us this past year to see our ninth church planted. Three, the Lord's allowed us to head up personally. Uh, there have been two men that have come out as missionaries that have married a couple of our girls from our sending church. And they've taken churches that we've planted or they've come alongside us and we've planted with them. And now we've got churches all over the eastern and central part of the reservation. And so glory, glory, to, God. glory to God. He's able. Yeah, Amen. he's able to do that on an Indian reservation in a place and in a work with a type of people that most look at it as a dead end work. You just, you're just going to go die out somewhere and be forgotten in the middle of a yeah. dust bowl. Yeah. And so I just praise my Lord. He, he's shown himself powerful and we're excited to be in a place where he's doing something that there is no way we could ever get an ounce of credit for it because yeah. it's so great. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Brother, you, you are the one that utilized this uh, sowing and reaping analogy yes, to, sir. to try to explain what God's done there. Yes. And so let me interact with that just a little bit. For one thing, You've been very uh, honest and upfront that this is not altogether your pioneering no. efforts. There was a foundation laid. Yes, you've already acknowledged that there were a lot. There, there were there were many years of hard plowing and clearing out the obstacles and the rocks and so forth and preparing that soil. 
you know, it is, and and um, I don't want to be too hard on the preachers that that tried to get you to check your expectations, right? Because by the same token, it, it, we, many of us have been serving the Lord long enough and interacting with this missions thing long enough to see some guys with unrealistic expectations that maybe do have just a touch of haughtiness and and youthful pride and some of these kinds of things. Uh, Sometimes testosterone is is mistaken (laughs) for the power of the Holy Spirit. Right, Uh, yes. You know, these are not the same things. So um, at the same time, it is really important, I think, for... Uh, first-term missionaries for new guys to recognize that they don't have to start everything on their own, that they are always coming in on somebody else's labors Absolutely. to one extent or another. Yes. And it may not even be within a generation, but I'm headed to I'm headed to Zimbabwe, and it doesn't matter how far you go back. You go back far enough, David Livingston, nobody would be going to the interior of Africa. If it hadn't been for Livingston, right. that guy maybe had one convert that possibly apostatized, you know. Wow. And and but by the same token, for for the rest of us that have been in in this thing for a little while, making some observations, we've got to really protect ourselves against skepticism and cynicism yeah. because we have not personally witnessed the fruit that maybe we hoped that we would have seen mm. in some of our own labors. Absolutely. It's it, it it's a two-way street there. Yeah. And Brother Lee, it was what was really neat when we took one furlough five years in, we were in, in between church plants, and we went back to some of those same churches where although they were skeptical, they still took us on for support. Amen. You know, kindly. And I remember the preacher in specific that made the comment about a plan B. We had a question and answer time and we were mentioning how many churches were planted and at what rate. And he raised his hand and said, Brother Joel, do you think maybe God will let you see more than 10 churches planted? <laughs> and so his, his heart is and yeah. was with us. And so, yes, just being a little easier on the preachers. I know exactly where you're coming <laughs> from, brother. Yeah. You've also addressed something that I think is so helpful in the course of this conversation and from two different angles, and that is that you yourself are a second-generation missionary. And that does have a—that is one means of advancing this sowing and reaping approach because in Navajo land and, and in some places, you, you realize soil is different different places you go. And it may take a seed uh, longer to germinate in one kind of soil than it does in another kind of yes. soil. Different factors, a lot of different factors. And uh, brother, on this program, we've had I've had several second generation missionaries mm-hmm. on the program, and I and I think that that is a that's something that it, that we would do well to observe the fact that we don't want to we don't want to call our children into into Christian service. No, sir. That is not the objective. But we do want to cultivate an atmosphere in our homes that make it desirable to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. This is the highest calling imaginable. Yes, sir. There is no work like the work Amen. of God. <laughs> yes. There are no people like the people of God. Yeah. 
And sometimes the greater harvest is in the second generation. Yes, sir. And uh, I, I, it's, it's. I, I hope that uh, while we, uh, while we do this missionary business, that maybe we'll, um, we'll think and consider that maybe part of the missionary business is raising these children on the full yes, mission sir. field. You know, really to that point, something the Lord did that was such a blessing for our family. When we moved to the reservation to plant our first work in a little town called Noslini, I still live there, uh, population 400, and wow. 399 of them are Navajo. <laughs> you know, um, we moved there, and, and folks asked, why would you move to such a small community? There are larger communities on the reservation that need to be reached. At that time, we had two boys. Now we have five. Brother Lee, I had no idea that there was a beautiful canyon just a mile down the road. When I'd been there, I'd been there looking for people, not scenery. I had no idea that there were ruins seven and eight hundred years old, tucked in cliffs there, that there was turkey down in there, that there were coyotes, that there were huge fields of petrified wood and fossils and, and dunes with volcanic rocks and clay. I, I had no idea of these things. And all along the while, I, as the Lord was sending us to this little community, I didn't have the answer. I didn't know. The Lord knew he was going to give us five boys. And he knew he was going to put us in a place where we could raise them, where they could be boys and climb those rocks and adventure. And, Amen. And I, I praise him that he put us in a spot that when, when we leave other places, they're anxious to get home. And they love living where we live. Wonderful. Yes, sir. You know, there's, a previous, there's an earlier generation in the course of modern missions history that felt like they had to choose between being full-time parents and full-time missionaries, mm. which is why children oftentimes were raised with family members in boarding schools, um, because it was fields. Certain fields were perceived as being just simply too dangerous to raise children on. But um, I, I really appreciate you raising that because it, God's manner. Uh, it you don't ha- you and I don't have the, the 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 liberty to choose which parts of the Bible we obey. Right, right, right. So we got the Great Commission over here, and we've got our responsibilities to our wives and to our children over here, and we've got to get these things under the same umbrella, so to speak, and yes. recognize that we can obey these responsive. We can we can observe these responsibilities and be faithful in both of these areas yes, simultaneously. Sir. Yes, sir. And when we do, you're you're living proof that God's plan and God's method and God's order really is the best way to go about things. Absolutely. Because your your parents not only raised, in your case, a Christian son, but a second generation laborer among the people that they uh, have sacrificed so much to reach. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. And brother, I, I see that value passing down with working with my wife, you know, we're a team, sure. and we understand that a lot of marriages don't last on the mission field if you don't put your heart into the same thing together. Yeah. And uh, and so my wife serves with me. She She's the organizer, the brains behind it, and I just shoot from the hip. But, you know, she started a bus route with one of my boys, with our oldest son, and they go out and pick up kids. Our teen department uh, will average anywhere between 10 to a dozen teenage boys and about one or two girls, because we have boys. Amen. Right, right. And so what you are, you know, you attract that in a lot of ways. And I have just seen how boys have flocked to our church because they want to spend time with my boys. 
and they want to be around our family. And there's, there's something that attracts them to that. And our society is broken in the family. Oh, yeah. And many yeah. of our people, the way they're going to learn how to have a right family is if my family's there and in front of them. And if they can come into my house and if I'll go sit in theirs. And so having my boys and my wife, having them just woven into everything we do in the ministry, I, I couldn't see being effective without them. That's brother. That's one of the reasons that longevity on a on a field of service is so important and ministering as a family, because you can't have strong churches without strong families. Yes, yes and sir. and you've got places around the world, whether you're talking about Navajo land or whether you're talking about Africa or whether you're talking about New Guinea, where you've got generations that have never seen a biblical home. Exactly. They've never seen a happy marriage. Yes, sir. They've never seen well trained children. Yeah. And, uh, it, but, but, but when you see it, that's one of the greatest testimonies to the power of the gospel. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And we've had, we've had occasions where folks have come up and they'll comment why well, your kids are so well behaved and time and again, I said, well, I've got a manual for that. <laughs> they didn't come that way, right? <laughs> that's right. I've got a manual and I'll share it with you what it says about raising a family. It, and in fact, this has been something so heavy on my heart, brother. Most of our people have had their children taken away by Child Protective Services time and again. And we have a lot of AA, there's a lot of counselors, but there's not a lot of folks dealing with the subject of the family on our reservation. And there's no concept even to the basic structure. So the things that we would normally expect from somebody, we can't. And I've seen a lot of folks come to our area, and I know this is not just Navajo land, but go to an area and there are things that folks don't know that we try to take for granted and expect them to know. Maybe because we come from an area of the States where that character is taught. But, uh, and, and, and it is difficult. I've, I spoke to a missionary recently and he said, how do you get your folks to be involved? How do you get these families to participate in the ministry? He said, my family and I are doing everything. We make all the food and we run the routes and we clean the buildings. And, and, and my answer, I was not trying to be sarcastic with them. I said, well, I tell them what to do <laughs> because do they know? don't know. Yeah. And, and so sometimes, especially if we have a background coming from a Christian family or a society with any kind of character at all, there's things we take for granted and we think, why don't they pick up on that? Why aren't they just jumping in and getting involved and... And one fellow said, well, I want the Holy Spirit to lead him. And I said, well, you know, he wants to use you. <laughs> he sent you there. And, and through you, he will lead the people to do and be what they ought to be. So we, we have a program 12 weeks at a time, seven steps to becoming a stable family. And we begin with structure and then the spirit and then what sustains and how to serve all the things that God created the family to be. And we meet every single week. Folks sign up, they earn certificates, they graduate from the seven steps all together. And we're finding it makes a huge difference when you just don't take anything for granted. Yeah. And you walk folks along in those steps. And I guess a lot of the frustrations that missionaries experience come from their their expectations are not being met from the from the people and we do sometimes take for granted. Because we've, you know, we've got a certain standard that we've always seen observed around us. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it's different for somebody that's never had that exposure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No father there or no mother there or you know, siblings spread all over the place. And so it's, it's a thrill. That, and so family, once again, my boys and wife, they play right into that, to being right. able to develop those yeah. things. So you've actually, 
you and the men that you work with, the, the team that God's put together there on Navajo land, yes. you've actually seen nine churches established? Yes, sir. In what space of time now? Since 2012. Since 2012. God's been so good. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because your original window was 15 years? It was 15 years. 10 churches in 15 years. The Lord's going to make us look silly. And like our faith was small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, the only way that ultimately works, that, that multiplication piece, is if you get men involved and men trained, and in this case, um, Navajo men trained. Yes. So how has, um, maybe you could be just a bit more specific, and or, or if there's some outstanding um, example or anecdote that you could give us uh, about some men that God has raised up um, uh, around you that you're excited about where God's multiplying the work now. Yes, sir. Well, you, our, our first two graduates, and you got to meet one of them last yes, night, yes. Brother Nelson, was yes. uh, Ryan Nez, Aaron Nelson. I'll, I'll, I'll just share with you what the Lord has done in Brother Ryan Nez's life. All of our men come from drunkenness. I mean, there's, not, there's nowhere else to get men on the reservation except from drunkenness, whether they're operational or not. Brother Ryan came to church with his wife, uh, who was saved as an eight-year-old girl in the very first VBS our family ever did when my dad moved out. Wow. And she'd gotten away from the Lord. She'd unequally yoked together with this unbeliever, and she had been going through a living hell. Mm. being his wife. And that's what happens when you marry somebody that's lost. Right. They had lost everything. He drunk them out of house and home. They'd, they were evicted. He had some great jobs that he just couldn't hold for his love for alcohol. They were living in a relative's home. And I remember when Miss Fabi and I first moved to the reservation, dad said, hey, there's a guy um, that you might be able to whip into something. I want you to try to work with him and work with his wife. And I remember when I first met him, he had hair that looked like cows had been grazing on it, holes in his jeans, uh, giant tongued 1980s style tennis shoes and an oversized white t-shirt. I'm just a mess. And Brother Ryan was one of those kind of fellows that could make you dislike him in about five minutes. He had a unique talent that way. <laughs> And I remember the night that he got saved, he had been battling with withdrawals from alcohol. He'd been trying to do it on his own, get back on his feet. In fact, there were times we would drive to meetings and he would look out the window of the vehicle when we're driving 75 miles an hour and he'd look and he'd say, that guy says I shouldn't talk to you. There's somebody outside the window telling me that I, I shouldn't listen to you. Wow. And what he was experiencing was voices and demonic oppression in his head. And they were telling him, we're going to hurt Amber. And we're going to hurt Mariah. And so in his twisted logic, as he's battling with this, he's thinking, I've got to go home and protect them from whatever these voices are. And he even begged, tried to get out of the vehicle one time and said, we've got to go back. We've got to go back. They're, they're going to get them. It all came to a head one night. He hadn't slept in 48 hours. And uh, he had run around the house with a fire extinguisher and he was spraying it everywhere. He would hear these voices. And his wife, and they just had the one daughter at that time, scared to death, got down on their knees in the living room and started to pray. And he had pulled out a, a pistol. And in his mind, he thought, I'm going to end their lives so that these voices can't get to them. And as she knelt there and, and he told her what he intended to do to them and then to himself, she begged him and she said, can I just show you one more time what pastor showed you how you can be saved? And she opened up the Bible and she led her husband to Christ. And he fell down on his knees and he dropped the gun and he called on the Lord. And he called the house that night 
waking us up. Said, I got saved. And listen, oh, oh, us of little faith, we said, yeah, 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 sure, sure. We'll, we'll talk to you Sunday. And he showed up a different man. We began to meet with them Sunday night, every single night for an hour and pray. And, and, uh, and they surrendered to ministry at a youth rally to reach his own people. And, and from there, he entered into the Bible school, received training, and has gone out and is now working on two different church plants across the Arizona and New Mexico lines. I'm telling you, Brother Cadenhead, if you looked at him, you'd never know that's what he came from. Such a godly man that in many ways, we're just co-laborers now. It's transitioned that relationship from being mentor to where we're partners in the work of the Lord together. Yeah, That is one sampling, and I'm not exaggerating, God knows my heart of hundreds, that I could tell you where God has just pulled him from the darkest of circumstances, and he's brought a joy that nothing else could. The government couldn't bring it to them. Any commodities, uh, nothing in a bottle, nothing they could inject in their arm. And the Lord has done that. So these are the kind of men that the Lord has raised up. And now we band together for things like youth rallies. And we just started a youth camp for these kids coming up. We don't want to lose them. So we've got this youth camp going. And and, uh, we're starting Christian schools and homeschool uh, fellowships in the different churches so we can get them out of the public school. And all of these men, I couldn't do this on my own, Brother Caden. Obviously. God's given us help with these men, and they're on fire for the Lord. They keep me going and encouraged, you know. Brother Haynes, that's uh, that's just a great reminder of the power of God. The gospel works. Yes, sir. It works everywhere. Yeah. And the Spirit of God, He can change men's lives and take them from drunkenness to pastoring. And it's just a beautiful thing to see wherever it takes place. Yes, sir. And it's been a joy to my heart to hear you recount some of these things. Thank you for what you're doing on the uh, on the reservation there. Excited uh, about what all what the Lord's already done, and it's it sure sounds. It looks like you're poised. I mean, it's just onward and upward. It's it's the things are you're you're set up to see like multiplication for years to come because of those uh, because of the foundation that's been laid. Yes, sir. So praise the Lord. Thank you so much, brother, for sitting down for the conversation. It's been a blessing. It's been provoked my faith. And I know that it'll be a blessing to our listeners. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Brother Cadenhead. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. I trust that the conversation today encouraged your heart. If you'd like to learn more about Brother Haynes and their efforts in Navajo land, you can find their ministry site online at NavajoLandBaptistMissions.com. That's NavajoLandBaptistMissions.com. You can also subscribe to this program on a variety of podcasting apps. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at GreatCommissionConversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.